Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is Sean Garner. I'm in studio with Adam Hansen and Cody Beeson. This is Life, Death, and the Law. Today we have a fantastic show for you. We're going to be talking about some controversial topics. One is uh, the funding that the U.S. is giving to Ukraine and how that's uh, contributing to Ukraine's efforts to uh, withstand Russia's invasion. And two is about Edward Snowden, the whistleblower on the NSA. So let's get started here. I want to first talk a little bit about the billions of dollars that are being funded to Ukraine. Now, Ukraine's been doing a a very good job, um, better than anybody expected in withholding and withstanding the Russian invasion and and even taking back territory to the extent that uh, now even Putin's run out of regulars and he's having to draft or bring back into service those who were on the reserve list. And it's creating a big backlash there in Russia to the extent that people are fleeing in the thousands because they don't want to be drafted back into service. Um, Some because I think they just don't want to fight um, a war that they don't agree with, and others possibly because they understand that uh, once they get sent off, there is no return date. And that's all understandable. But the question is, to what extent do we, as American citizens, want to continue funding this war? Uh, many people say that the war is a proxy war between the United States and Russia, and uh, that we, much like when Russia invaded Afghanistan um, back in the, I want to say, 70s and 80s, um, we funded a lot of the, the resistance there because we the stronger any opponent was to Russia, the better off we were. And and it, it largely worked. I mean, the Soviet Union poured billions of dollars into that war, and eventually there was a collapse of the Soviet Union, and people can say that that was the straw on the camel's back that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So um, are we doing the same thing here? Is that really what we're doing? Is, is Are we perpetuating this war long enough just to weaken a foe and, and, and that's what we see in Russia, or are we really trying to support democracy in middle Europe, I would say? It's not Eastern, not Western, it's kind of the middle region. I don't know, what, where, where is Ukraine as far as the definition of Europe and Eastern Europe goes? I mean, it's Eastern Bloc, right? Eastern Europe? Okay, Eastern Europe. So are, are, we, are we that uh, interested in democratic ideas being... Uh, perpetuated in, in governing systems there. Is that is that really the reason that the United States is involved in um, Ukraine's resistance from the Russian invasion? I don't know the answer to that question. I, I ask that question all the time to myself. You know, why are we even, why are we interested in Ukraine and its, its sovereignty or its uh, security at the expense of our tax-paying dollars? And I think that's really what we're going to get into a little later on in this in this particular show. You have to understand that when we th- when we send over billions of dollars to a foreign nation for their aid, where does that money come from? Do you pluck it out of thin air? China. China. Yeah. We borrow it from China. That's right. We have to borrow yeah. because we we are already trillions of dollars in debt, and so we don't have the money necessarily to fund billions and billions of dollars to finance a defense action against Russia in Ukraine 
And ultimately, we're going to get into this a little bit later. Um, the the principle that Sean, you you brought this to my attention. It was Davy Crockett many years ago in the in the in the early eighteen hundreds, eighteen twenty ish, when Davy Crockett was a congressman. <clears throat> he tells a story that uh, that we'll talk about a little bit later. That when um, there was a widow, that was. She was a widow of uh, a veteran, an army veteran, an army veteran, and and so a petition came to the Congress at that time to give her money because yeah. of of uh, her falling on hard times uh, in the in, in the wake of her husband passing away, <clears throat> and so it it uh, pulled on the heartstrings of all those in the chambers of Congress, and they were agreeing to pay her i think twenty thousand dollars was the sum which back yes. then i mean think of the amount of money that was back in the early 1800s it would have set her up for life probably yeah it would have been equivalent of a wrongful death suit you know when you win a wrongful death suit and you get paid out millions of dollars to the hope is compensate for the loss of a loved one in a wrong way that shouldn't have happened and set you up for life so it's kind of the equivalent of that and sean what happens when when they bring this action in front of the the uh, floor of Congress? So I've got the transcript here because uh, now <clears throat> we've got this Davy Crockett, as as most of you are aware, he lives in America folklore, but he he was a real person. He's he's revered as the king of the wild frontier, right? And and I know him from Disney videos, but he was a real figure, and he was a prominent figure in United States history in that he served on Congress, but he was also out there in the wilderness. He was mapping, he was serving in the army, and he died at the Alamo um, defending what America asserted to be its right to that territory. But um, what he said in this speech is, is what we want to talk about right now. It says, when the bill was put before the House, and he was a member of the House, he, he says, Mr. Speaker, I have as much respect for the memory of the deceased and as much sympathy for the suffering of the living, if suffering there be, as at any man in the house. But we must not permit or respect our respect for the dead or sympathy for the part of the living to lead us into an act of injustice to the balance of the living. We have the right as individuals to give away as much of our own money as we please in charity or in any other purpose, but as members of Congress, we have no right to do so, to appropriate dollars of the public and to divert it to private charities. And that is the moral. Do I have the right to go to my neighbor, who I know is wealthy, who I know has much more than he needs to subsist off of, and demand that he pay for my child's college or for my bills or even our next-door neighbor who lost her husband or is... In, in dire straits, that's the same thing. Um, whether I'm doing it individually or as if, whether I'm doing it collectively as a group of citizens demanding money from our, our other citizens in, out there. So Rand Paul, senator from Kentucky, makes this same argument. We have the ability to raise funds and, and suggest that the public get involved in putting together um, charitable donations to Ukraine, or we, we can also loan money to Ukraine, but we can't just take the money from our citizens and give them to another person because we deem it appropriate as charity. Once we deem that appropriate, then you can, you can mark any entity as charity and therefore 
taking of one person and giving to another is justified. And that a lot of people have dubbed taxation, the current laws of taxation, legalized theft. And I think that that really puts it into perspective. So whether or not we should support Ukraine is, is a completely separate issue. The real question is, does Congress and should Congress have the authority to take the money from the taxpayers and give it to this charitable purpose, regardless of how virtuous and, and righteous their fight and plate might be? The, the concept here is a fiduciary role, I think, and we, we deal with this all the time in our law firm. We have clients that will need fiduciary services from time to time. They've either become incapacitated or unable to manage their own, their own uh, finances. And so oftentimes what we need to do is we need to help get a what's called a conservatorship set up so that somebody can step in and help these individuals that can't go to the bank on their own or they can't manage their own financial situation. When we go through that process, it's an onerous process to go through the court court process of getting a guardianship or a conservatorship in, in order or up and running. And when you do that, it's very, very uh, stressful. And the court is watching over everything because they want to make sure that whoever is appointed as a conservator, or in other words, the fiduciary, the person that's tasked with watching over the finances for this other individual, that they are not running away with the money or misappropriating the funds or doing something that should not be done with those funds. And so as a, as a consequence to that, the court holds a very close watch over that fiduciary or that conservator that's been appointed. And that happens all the time, every day here in Yuma County and all over the United States. Conservatorships are being set up for other individuals. And that person that's appointed is in a fiduciary capacity. It's And Sean, you've served on, on different boards for different organizations or charities and foundations here in, in Yuma. And I, I've served on on some as well. And when you're in that role as a board member for a charity, for a 501c3 organization, you're in this role of a fiduciary. So the money that comes into these charities, as we sit on a board from time to time, things will come before us to make a decision as to how to spend the money that's come in to the charity. And we don't take that lightly. It's very, very, uh, I would say, I don't want to use the word sacred necessarily. I don't think it's that much, but it kind of is. You're in this role of a fiduciary that it's not, we recognize it's not our money. That money has been given to this charity for a very select purpose of helping other people for, for the purpose of that charity. And it needs to be used in such a way that will accomplish the goals of that charity. And so we as a board, we will be very diligent about how we spend the money and what we appropriate the funds to. I get the feeling that if you were to go and sit in on a, on a day-in, day-out Congress session, you're going to be hearing about all sorts of issues that are coming up across the United States. And I'm willing to bet that money is being appropriated and, and approved to be spent on a myriad of things that you probably don't agree with. Yet, that money isn't the government's money. The government doesn't have money. The government has our money that we give to it through taxation, but that isn't the government's money. It's our money. And so when they misappropriate it or they use it in such a way that's willy-nilly like spending $30 billion in a war 
in, a, in Ukraine or the defense of Ukraine, I have a, a real issue with that. Because number one, I don't agree with it. It's my money. It's your money. And I get the feeling that they're not treating it in such a way that, that uh, they realize that it's not their money. I, I don't think anybody can actually stand up and give an honest answer as to exactly how the money is being used and where it's, it's going. We know that there's a lot of corruption um, in the Ukraine government, as in with any government, but specifically with Ukraine, that it was well documented that uh, uh, there was corruption within the ranks. And so is this money going specifically to further uh, the purpose of democracy or is it going to pad the pockets of politicians in Ukraine? Uh, I have no doubt that uh, the missiles and some of the um, weaponry and, and defenses that are sent over there are being used to withhold the invasion or withstand the invasion. And certainly without that assistance, I think that Ukraine would have either fared much worse or fallen at this point. But the money, can anybody track it? I, I think there's been several congressional hearings about that, and nobody's been able to say how the money is tracked. I, I think that's a, a big, big issue. And, and I think that that goes across the board. As you were speaking, Sean, I had two specific examples come to my mind that I know of here in Yuma County that we've seen in the last couple of years of government just taking taking stuff and wait, they, they just waste. Actually, three. Another one comes to mind now that I say that. The the Iraq uh, takeover. When, when we got out of Iraq, when Biden pulled the troops out of Iraq, we left billions of dollars of equipment and tanks and, and military equipment over there, and we just left it. And we so much money, as if it grows on trees or it just magically comes into being. We just walked away. That's one instance. Here, more close to home, is the border fence. Once Biden got in, when he he signed that that uh, the first day in office. He had all those executive orders lined up. One of those was to stop the building of the border fence. So all that material that has already been prepaid, it's been prepaid through our tax dollars. They just literally left it on the ground. And I know of a lot of people, the day that happened, they were straight to the border and they started grabbing that stuff because nobody has any, the, the federal government doesn't care. They just left. They left the job site. They left all the, all the pipe there and... If you go around town, you'll see pieces of the border wall in the backyards of people because they went and they grabbed it. I don't know if I fault them for that. I mean, it's our tax money that bought it. Well, you're just taking it back, I suppose. Don't do that. I'm not advocating for that. But, but at the same time, I mean, there was no one that was watching over it because everybody scattered. They just literally dropped the material and left it in piles at the border. And I talked to a, a client of ours um, Sean, about not before that happened, he was telling me back when Obama came into office and he did the same thing because Bush had started the wall. And then once Obama came in, they did the same thing. They just stopped. He said the material was still sitting there for the, for the next eight years. It just sat there getting rusty. And then once Trump took over and started the wall, they picked it up and started putting it up. So it, it's, it's ludicrous to me to see how government takes our money and misappropriates it. They do not treat it, in my, my opinion, sacred like a fiduciary should. And I think they need to be held accountable for that. And so the only way you can do that is through elections, really, is through our democratic process. We've got to go to break. This is Life, Death, and Law, 560 AM KBLU. We'll be right back after this. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. 
Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit YumaEstatePlanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is 560 AM KBLU. I'm attorney Adam Hanson. I'm in the studio today with my partner, Sean Gardner, and we've got Cody. We were talking earlier before the break about the fiduciary responsibility of our elected officials and how, in my opinion, I think, Sean, you probably share the same sentiment that they probably are not meeting the standard of what we would call a professional fiduciary in our line of business when it comes to our tax money that we give to them. So the government is very quick to tax us. They want all of our money, right? And they'll decide how much they give back to you at the end of the year uh, once you give it to them. And once they have it, what are they going to do with it? And we don't really have a lot of control over that other than who we elect to come into the House and into the Senate federally. And on the state level, it's the same. You know, your House representatives and you've got your senators uh, for the state of Arizona. So through our election system, our democratic system, uh, our democratic republic, we elect officials that we are trusting to take our tax money and then appropriate it according to the will of the people is the hope, you know, for those things that I would hope would better our community, would strengthen our security and make us a better place to live. Usually that comes in the form of on the local level, maintaining the roads, improvements and things like that for our daily living, signs and roads and and uh, maintenance of, of the, the thoroughfares and things like that, buildings. But on the federal level, it'd be our highways, things like that. But what we've found over the course of time since this great American project or experiment happened is that once we broke off from the sovereign, King George III, through the revolution, most of that was spawned by excessive taxes. And I, I argue, and I talk about this all the time, uh, Sean, that I feel like we're back to that exact same spot. Yes, we have a three-branch government, but at the same time, you and I don't really have the ability to control the FBI or the CIA or the IRS, these government agencies that have cropped up what I would argue is the fourth branch of government. And they're the ones that are coming out and collecting taxes. So we just heard about this initiative of the Biden administration to hire, what is it, 80, 85,000 new IRS tax agents with, and, and not just agents, they're not 
They're not uh, 85-year-old grandmas. They're probably young and spry because they also made the announcement at the same time, oh, by the way, they're going to be armed. They're going to have um, firearms with them. So it sounds like you know the Gestapo. They're going to come to your house. And a couple weeks ago, I, I don't know how familiar you are with this story, Sean, but we heard about this gentleman. I, I don't know where he, was, he lives, but they served a no-knock warrant on him, they, the FBI, and just went into his house. He has seven little kids at home. And the charge was that he had prevented somebody from entering into a Planned Parenting agency. Yeah, a pro-life couple. Yeah, they, they, they took at gunpoint. Yeah, mm-hmm. I heard about that. Yeah, so why you need to uh, you know serve a no-knock warrant, go in guns a-blazing with the FBI in the middle of the, of the night, I don't know for that type of a charge, but it doesn't matter. You know, if if they get that warrant, and we saw this with the recently with the Trump documents that were seized in Mar-a-Lago, that the FBI had a mission. They got their their warrant signed by some judge that was willing to do it, probably politically motivated, and uh, they got it done. And so they they go do what they want to do, and they try and set things up in such a way that oh well, if you look at it constitutionally, it should work because they they had the warrant, they had it signed by a judge, and therefore they everything's good. But when you really scrutinize it, it starts to fall, fall apart, and it becomes a little bit more of a political motive. So getting back to finances, it doesn't sit well with me that my money is so freely taxed by our federal government and our state government, and, and I, don't have, I feel like it's out of my control after that. Once they have my money and your money, we don't really have much control, I feel like, at that point. So if they want to spend $80 million of my money and your money aiding Iraq— or excuse me, Ukraine and the defense from Russia, you and I don't really have a, a say in that other than we have to wait till the next election cycle. And if somebody, uh, one of our congressmen or our senators voted in such a way that we didn't agree with, then we can vote against them or vote for the next guy or gal. But really, that's it. In a, in, in a real life situation, not real life, but in a private type situation where you and I deal with fiduciaries all the time and conservatorships through a court system, if the court system acted like, or excuse me, if a conservator acted like our federal government acts with money, they would be yanked off that conservatorship. They would probably be fined. They'd probably be jailed. Yeah, they'd be thrown in jail for misappropriation of funds and, uh, you know, just a complete derelict of duty. Their duty is to the person that actually they hold the funds for. And they can't just come up with any idea that they feel is charitable or worthwhile and, and throw money at that. They have to spend it specifically for the benefit of the individual who they're, they're appointed to guard over or watch over. And that's what Congress is doing. There are fiduciaries. Benjamin Franklin explained that very well. You know, as, as he walked out of Constitutional Hall in Philadelphia, a woman asked him, and this is, you know, a famous statement, what have you done for us, Mr. Franklin? And he says, well, we've created a republic, if you can keep it. And the concept there was, we have created a, a document that will allow individuals to be free as long as you can continue to understand and appreciate what it means to be free. And that's the good with the bad. But as soon as you vote in tyrants and allow yourself to be accustomed to ease and, and security rather than freedom and independence, then you're going to give away all that we've worked for and fought for here. What comes to mind is is that book that we read probably a year, year and a half ago by Ezra Taft Benson. And really what it was is he gave a, a speech back in like, 
I think it was like 1950 something um, about the proper role of government. Right. And if you haven't read that, Google it. It's uh, the proper role of government by Ezra Taft Benson. It's Benson, right? Yes. And uh, he was the he was the director of the Department of Agriculture. I think. No, it's actually Spencer W. Kimball. Kimball. Yeah, Spencer W. Kimball. And he he worked for the federal government for many decades, and uh, he was not a fan of big government. Benson, in that proper role of government speech, he really outlines it very well, and I think that that's what I went to to form my to form my concept of what a government is and how it should act. I kind of use that as my textual basis or my outline as to what is right and what is wrong. So when I go to the polling place to cast my vote, I'm really using this speech that I, I read a long time ago that, that uh, sets up the foundation of the proper role of a government to guide my, my, uh, my vote. If, uh, if there's a person on the ballot that I feel like is, is um, not understanding their role as a government actor, um, if elected, then I'm not going to vote for them. And in my opinion, a government actor is somebody that will that recognizes that government doesn't create jobs. The government doesn't have money. The government only has a sole purpose of helping us with those constitutional principles of life, the pursuit of happiness, and what's the third one, Sean? Life, liberty, and property. And pursuit of happiness, yeah, through ownership well, I, of property. So the pursuit of happiness, or the original verbiage, was property because property is how you make a living. It's through property that we are incentivized to innovate and to work harder to improve our situation in life. If we don't have property, then we can't own and keep any of the things that we work hard to develop. And so it's it's life, originally, we have to be alive to do it. We have to have liberty and, and be granted the access to um, freedom of our own thoughts and actions. And then we have to be allowed ownership over what we create. And those are the three pillars that create a free society. I like that ownership of what of what you create. I like the way you said that. To me, the word that came to mind was accountability. It, with uh, ownership of land or ownership of stuff, you now have accountability. If I'm driving a car and I don't maintain the oil changes, if I don't maintain the tires, I might own it, but uh, I also it comes with a, a sense of accountability. Because if, if I don't keep up those things with the thing that I own, it's going to become ragged and not function properly, and that's my accountability. On the other hand, if I keep up with the tires and the maintenance of the oil and things like that, and I drive it, I don't do pedal to the metal every time I'm at a stoplight and it turns green, then that car is going to function better. So there's a sense of accountability when you own something. Hence the statement, drive it like a rental. Drive it like a rental. You drive like a rental? No, but uh, yeah, if, if, if somebody says drive it like a rental, that, that <laughs> means you don't care about it. Yeah, that's true. I was just talking to a friend last week about that. He rented a, a boat, and I was like, oh, and he ran into an issue. Did you hear about it? Yeah. <laughs> he actually ran it into some rocks, and uh, I was like, eh, it's a rental. So that's a common phrase, you know? Eh, it's a rental. Right. You got insurance? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're fine. It's a rental. Yeah, so ownership, but if that was your own boat or your own car, yeah, you wouldn't treat it the same. That's most definitely um, a, a fact. And I think the founders Or house or that. land or anything. Yeah, when a person owns something, it's interesting how I think deep down innately we have 
the sense of responsibility that that grows in us and one of accountability and ownership really breeds the that uh, growth in a person um, for good or for bad. I think some people squander that, you know, sometimes. But uh, I think in most people, once they own a little piece of land or they own a car or they own something that they can say, this is mine, they really take ownership of that and the accountability of that and they work harder to maintain it and, and keep it um, up as opposed to it's a rental. So let's get back to this Davy Crockett story. When he was um, talking about this widow who he the, the bill was proposed to provide support for, he said, listen, we don't have authority to take the public funds and to support her, but I'm the poorest man out here, and I will take a week of my, my earnings, and I will donate that to this widow, because I do have control over my, my own money. And if each member of Congress will do the same, then we will provide this widow far more than the bill is asking for, and we will provide her from our own charity. So we're not robbing the public of their money and also robbing ourselves of the option to contribute to a worthy cause. We are giving both. We are going to provide the charity that is deserved, but we're going to do it only under the authority that we have, and that's over our own property. That that is the point. And so if the Congress people were asked today, how much of your own money are you donating to Ukraine? How much of your own money are you donating to any of these public services that you're voting bills for to fund? Then I think you would have a deafening silence in the Congress floor. It becomes different when uh, it's your own money at, at, at uh, play, right? It's easy to play with our money, which is made up to them. I feel like, you know, it's just monopoly money. Oh, it's just a number that we throw out there on on Congress floor. But if you were to say, well, why don't you pick up the tab personally, Nancy Pelosi or Harry Reid? You guys put in the money and you come up with the $30 billion that you're at or the $80 billion that you're asking for. Then I'm sure they're not as willing to vote yes on that because now it's hurting them. Uh, it's coming out of their own pocket. And uh, I think that's a great point, that they really need to think of that money, uh, substituting their own money for that money, and would they still vote yes on that particular uh, thing coming before them. We gotta go to break. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. Yuma, Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. I am Sean Garner, an attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. I've got Adam Hanson here in studio with Cody Beeson. Uh, We do estate planning. We help people understand how to pass along their legacy, all that they've acquired throughout a lifetime, including their values and and personal property, to individuals they love and care about without um, government interference. And so we we do that very efficiently on a professional level, and that is why we're able to fund this show, which helps people understand not only how to accomplish that and where to go to find out what to do to um, get that done, but also the the broader concepts of our government and whether the government is serving its proper fiduciary role of using the funds that it takes from us, private citizens, and puts in the in the public coffers to distribute for the better benefit or the, the good and the protection of our country. And I think what we've got now is a runaway train where there's unlimited spending on any and every um, possible item that you can conceive of, whether it's mating calls of tree frogs in South Africa. And uh, there's a wonderful speech by Rand Paul that he did um, in Congress just recently, and it was discussing an additional 80, or not 80, but I think it's $40 billion that uh, Congress is asking for to deliver to Ukraine. And he said, hold on, this is, we, we can't just keep giving our citizens' money to another country, regardless of how virtuous and righteous that country's cause is. We have to recognize this is not our money. And that's what we're talking about right now. We're talking about, is it right or wrong to give somebody else's money? And one point is, when you're thinking about it, consider how much are you willing to give personally to that effect? I think a really good exercise for any informed citizen out there that's looking to vote is look at the charitable donation history of the political candidate that you're considering voting for. Because historically what we've seen is those political candidates or those in office who are charitable in their ideals are not very charitable personally. They're willing to give away other people's money, but they're they're very difficult to part with their own. I think that's a great example. And Cody, during the break, you brought up how President Trump, he donated his salary all four years. Um, I think he kept a dollar maybe or something like that. But but yeah, he donated his salary. And we just don't hear about that very much. Why don't they talk about that? If he truly had all these malicious uh, or nefarious dealings and, and intent or connections with Russia, why did he donate his salary? I, hadn't seen, I haven't seen that in my lifetime with any other previous president. Um, from Reagan to to the Bushes to Clinton to Obama, I've never seen that before. And Sean, you mentioned George Washington is is known for doing that. So why doesn't that get more media attention? Or why didn't it at the time during that four years? I knew he had done, or I had heard that he had done it, but I wasn't quite sure. It was just kind of like I heard that he's done this. People would tell me, but I didn't know if he actually did it. I don't know why there wasn't more. Um, 
media attention to that. And it makes me sad because it goes to show this point that you're talking about, Sean. You look at the, the charitable giving of a person, and that's really kind of the, te- the testament of, of that individual. Do they truly believe in the idea that they're selling? is whether or not they're willing to do it themselves first, as an example. Yeah, absolutely. Are you willing to sacrifice yourself, you know, um, for this particular cause? And I would argue that most of the things done on a daily basis on Congress floor, those those congressmen and those senators, they, they probably wouldn't uh, vote yes to those things if they knew, hey, this is coming out of my my personal funds, my bank account. See, um, and that's the thing that I, that I have an issue with, with these liberal ideologies. If you're if you're liberal and you you believe in these social welfare welfare programs that um, there should be a safety net out there that everybody has the right to health care and everybody has a right to um, a certain standard of living and uh, and that standard should be a high middle class standard that everybody basically has this right to it and that the rest of us that who have worked hard and have achieved some level of success need to fund that until it becomes essentially a penalty to be successful in this country because you're being taxed and you're being regulated so strictly that uh, now you no longer need to keep the property that you used and the intellectual ideas that you actually worked so hard on to build that wealth in the first place. Here at our firm, we have an accountant that does... I mean, he does miracles for us, and so we have we have phone calls with him from time to time. I think once a quarter, at least. And so once a quarter, we'll have this phone call with our accountant who says, "Okay, this is how you're doing this last quarter. This is what we we need to do to prepare for the future." And I remember very vividly when Biden came into office, and a lot of this tax issues came up. Things changed dramatically, and it came to the point where it's like, "Well, why would I come to work?" now that as much as i do if i'm just going to be penalized because that's that's what happens at a certain point you start to be you start to be penalized and that there is no incentive it has a chilling effect on success and uh, i don't understand the mentality where you want to curb the potential of an american citizen right if somebody's being successful and showing that they're they're brilliant in an idea that a lot of people are signing on to and it is helping build the economy provide jobs make technology more efficient then um you're going to take that person and you're going to say okay instead of us charging you 25 percent, we're going to charge you 40 percent because you've worked really hard and 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 provided all these jobs it's like basically reducing the salary of a mayor who increases the efficiency of the inner workings of the city. It's like, why would you do that? Wouldn't you want to increase the salary of that mayor and make sure he sticks around and continues to be incentivized to do a good job? In fact, I did this um, with my kids. I can't remember if I mentioned this before my kid on the show, but um, mowing the lawn is, is, is a big deal at my house because the, the lawn grows fast and uh, it's a, there's a lot of it. So my my nine-year-old, he mows the lawn, and my 12-year-old um, is responsible for trimming around it. Now, it used to be that mowing the lawn and trimming around the yard took about the same amount of time, because trimming it, it, it was a new skill for my 12-year-old. He was, I think, 10 at the time he started doing it, and it took him a long time, and it was really kind of a jagged job, and so I'd pay them each $20, $20 to mow the lawn, $20 to trim the yard. Well, now... Um, during the summertime, my lawn is taking about 
three hours to mow because it's so darn hot out there that my uh, nine-year-old needs to take several breaks during out during the process. Otherwise, he's going to get heat exhaustion. And my 12-year-old, he trims a yard in like 30 minutes. It's really quick. And so I told him, listen, $20 for 30 minutes is too much. I'm not going to continue paying you $20 for 30 minutes. And, you know, my nine-year-old, I'm saying, you're out there in the heat and you're working really hard and you're taking breaks. So, and, and he decides to do it during the, um, the heat of the day. He could get up early and do it if he wanted to, but he never does. And so I said, you know what? We're going to pay you $40. And for the trimming, we're going to pay you $10. And my 12-year-old looks at me and goes, hold on a second. So because I've become more efficient at the job that you hired me to do, you're going to pay me less? And because he's making that job take longer and he has to take breaks throughout it because of the time of day that he chooses to mow, you're going to pay him more? And, and I said, well, yes. And um, welcome to the real world. <laughs> and that's how the government works. Those who make life very difficult because of the choices they make oftentimes and are struggling as a result of it, um, they get the benefits. And, and the case in point, I, I help people with Medicaid benefits and I help them apply to get state benefits that are paid for through federal dollars, the Medicaid program. And those who have not saved up money, who have not... Um, invested in a house or in an IRA or retirement plan or, or even long-term care insurance, they will get state benefits to pay for their long-term care at the same nursing facility that those who have not have not uh, neglected their, their responsibility to provide for themselves in their old age. They've saved up a retirement. They've put money towards a home and, and, and build um, a reserve they're not going to get those benefits. And I often get asked from my clients, why? Why, why, why don't I deserve the same benefits as somebody who has just uh, not been responsible their whole life and, and paid as much money into the tax system as I've paid? And I said, well, you know, the government rewards bad behavior, essentially, and punishes those who are productive. And I, I, I can't tell you that it's a good system. In fact, I disagree with it. But my job as a lawyer is to help people keep as much as they can and work in an imperfect system, and that's what I do. So I have to help navigate through the system as much as I disagree with it. Before we go, I just want to mention, Sean, uh, we are going to do a round of seminars this month, which is exciting because we haven't done this for months. Um, since COVID happened, we've, we've been kind of sporadic about it as people went back uh, to their daily activities. And so at the end of this month, of October on the 27th, that's a Thursday, we're going to do a seminar in at the main library. And then on the 28th, that's Friday, we're going to do the same seminar, but out at the Foothills Library. So if you have time and you're in those locations, uh, we hope you come and see us and and get the information you need to get your affairs in order. That's what we do there. And it's a really good atmosphere. And you'll be able to ask us questions um, one-on-one there as well. If you have questions about um, how things work and how how you can get your planning in order. I'm assuming like you'll be able to go over everything that's changed in the past like year or two. Like it, things change all the time, so you'll be able to address anything that may need to be updated from previous planning, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the benefit of going to these uh, seminars live is because you've got Sean or I there to answer questions for for the group, you know, and uh, what I've found is that it's very beneficial to everybody because they all get to hear and and participate and uh, ask questions to an attorney right there on the spot. 
And it's fun to watch us squirm around as we get mm-hmm. questions asked. Ironically, us. I really like the hecklers in the crowd. And the reason why is because the crowd gets to hear uh, somebody who is not sympathetic to the idea that I'm um, explaining and attempt to poke holes in my reasoning. And only by doing that do you understand how really the plan works. If, if I can't withstand somebody asking me questions in real time and with real hypotheticals about how my planning and my proposals will work, then uh, I'm not suitable for taking over and, and instructing you on your own affairs. And so I, I put it out there. Who thinks that uh, this is not going to work or has any questions about this? Does anybody not understand what we're discussing or, or think that what we're saying basically is just snake oil and, and is not going to work in the real world? And then people get to bring real, real, world, yeah, real world scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, that's the benefit of or the, the blessing, I should say, of free speech in this country is that that was the purpose was to allow for differing opinions or challenges to opinions to take place and to fr- to freely speak or sometimes yell at each other to get the points across. And sometimes uh, you need that in order to get to the basis of an ideology or to figure out a problem. You need an exchange, a free exchange of ideas and communication back and forth so you can arrive at the solution to that problem. And curbing that, like you said, Sean, is, is a real detriment to progress. And um, so just to remind you, the 27th is a Thursday. October 27th, we'll be doing a seminar in at the main library. And then on the 28th, which is a Friday, we'll be doing that same seminar out at the Foothills Library. So we try to accommodate those that are in town and those that are out in the Foothills so they don't have to drive so far. But if maybe one of those works for your schedule on a particular day, then come and see us and and, uh, see what we can help you with. Um, That's all we have for today. We will talk to you next Monday. This is Life, Death, and Law, 560 AM, KBLU. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.